the title of the message is The Voice. All right? John chapter 20. We're going to begin reading here in verse 19. I love this portion of scripture. It reads the following. The same day at evening, this is actually 2,000 years ago to the day, it's on a Sunday, first day of the week, day of resurrection. So that evening being the first day of the week, that's a Sunday, verse 19, when the doors were shut where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, Jesus came, stood in the midst and said to them, what's the next word you guys? Peace. All right, or shalom, be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. The disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. So Jesus said to them, peace to you. As the Father has sent me, I send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them. And he said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you refrain the sins of any, they are retained. So in other words, he's commissioning them to go out, really spread the penicillin of healing, of God's healing in life that is at the cross and in Christ. It's one way to look at it. Verse 24, though, we got to get to this. Thomas, called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples therefore said to him, we have seen the Lord. So he said to them, unless I see in his hands the print of the nails and put my finger in the print of the nails and put my hand in his side, I'm not going to believe it. And after eight days, his disciples were again inside and Thomas with them. Jesus came, the doors being shut, stood in the midst of them. And again, you have shalom to you. In verse 27, he said to Thomas, reach your finger here. Look at my hands, reach your hand there and put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. And in verse 28, Thomas answered, this is one of the great turning points in history, and said to him, my Lord and my God. And Jesus said, Thomas, because you have seen, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen yet have believed. And it says in verse 30, truly Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the, let's all say the next word, Christ, son of God, and that by leaving, you may have life in his name. All right, you may have a seat, and thanks so much for doing all that standing, you guys. How many of you, out of curiosity, I asked this question uh, Friday night, had a great concert, and we celebrated the death of Jesus. I like to begin the same way, uh, and that is with this question. How many of you, out of curiosity, have seen that TV show, The Voice? Just out of curiosity, could you raise your hand? You know, I like that show. I'm not a big TV watcher, but it's a great show. Uh, it's a singing competition, So you have four judges, they're famous musicians and writers, best in the business. The thing is, is that they have their back to the singer, so they don't know if this singer's 15 or 55, and sometimes it's a 15-year-old, and sometimes it's a 55-year-old. They don't, they can't see him because their back is to them. They're sitting in chairs. The singer walks out on a stage like this. You know, kind of you imagine if you're the judges, but your back is turned to them. And so they begin to sing and they're all really great singers and stuff. And, and they're just really honing how good a singer are there. Can they hit this note and that note? It's kind of like all about the voice. It's not about the presentation. It's, you know, again, I mean, you know, they, they, they don't know if this person's male sometimes or even female. 
Um, and if they like the voice, they push a button on their chair and their chair turns around and then they try to get the person on their team. It's a big competition. And ultimately, the best voice kind of wins. Now you say, why did you begin that way? Here's why. The Bible says there is the voice of God. God has communicated to us. God has revealed himself to us and he wants us to hear it. Jesus said, my sheep hear my, can someone tell me? Voice. It's interesting. My sheep hear my voice. They hear the truth of who I am and what I've accomplished. It's like God has communicated. God has revealed himself to us. Listen, here's the reality. If God hasn't revealed himself to us, we have no idea why we exist. I mean, if the creator of the entire universe did not reveal himself to us, we have no idea why we even exist, what God's plan is for our life. And the alternative would be horrible. Um, If there is even no God, my goodness gracious, that means we're all a byproduct of mindless nature. We're all just a bunch of mistakes. Aren't you glad you came to hear that? It's not true. That's That's the good news. Listen, let's go back to this. My sheep hear my voice and follow me. Powerful statement there. And that tells us that before a person hears the voice of Jesus, their back is actually turned to the Lord. Okay, so they have their back to the Lord. And it's like the Lord is trying to get that person's attention. And for the majority of us, there came a time where we heard his voice. And like he was running us down. And and the truth of the matter is he finds us. We don't really find him. And he's communicating. He revealed himself to us. And then for us as Christians, we push the button. It's called repentance, which means to change the way you think, which then leads to a change of lifestyle. Hey, look, boil down. Here's the thing. The Lord wants you to hear from him. He wants you to hear his voice. And the most important decision you will ever make in your life is what you do with what you hear. It's, it's, it's what you do with who Jesus is. It is the most important decision you'll ever make because it will have the biggest impact in the here and now as well as for eternity. Now, I just want you to keep that illustration in mind because I want to come back to it in a little bit. We're talking about the voice, but here's the thing this morning. We have three main objectives. One is we're going to identify the evidences that not only tell us of the empty tomb of Jesus, but the bodily resurrection of Jesus. Because you see, it's not enough that there's just an empty tomb. The body could have been stolen. There could have been some miscommunication, like where is he buried or something. I mean, empty tomb is not enough. There there needs to be a clear demonstration that actually he resurrected from the dead and it has to be more than a hallucination or an idea or it's springtime and there's new life. No, there has to be undeniable evidence of bodily resurrection. We're gonna talk about it. It's very important. To put your faith in Jesus, there's no way it's any form of intellectual suicide. You're making the best decision in life, and it's an informed decision. We're going to talk about that, because the reality is, like the majority of our decisions in life are all a step of faith. We'll talk about this a little bit later. And generally, they're informed steps of faith, but none of us make 
a decision either going into marriage or going into business or eating that donut or getting on the plane. None of us make the decision like, I'm absolutely one billion percent sure this is reality. No, the surety comes after making the decision. In a similar way, the Lord wants us to take a step of faith, but it's an informed step based upon crystal clear and weighty evidence. How many of you are tracking so far with that idea? Okay, it's a very important. Now watch this. It's one thing to say, okay, Jesus resurrected from the dead. I mean, the evidence is overwhelming, but why did he? What's the significance of his resurrection? We want to address that. And one way we're going to do that is we're going to look at the broader context right around the weeks of Jesus' life there in Jerusalem, and it will bring out like what he was doing, why he died on the cross, and what it means that he resurrected from the dead. And then we want to get to like, okay, what are we going to do with all of that? And it comes to a decision, you know, okay, am I going to push the button or not? Okay, so let's get a little running start. Here's a big idea. Jesus resurrected from the dead, which means he's alive. But how alive? Is he just alive in our imagination? Is he alive in the sense that he continues to inspire people? I'm so glad that you're here. It's great to be here. We've all been inspired either directly or indirectly by Jesus. How alive is Jesus? Is he consciously alive? Is he alive enough that actually he's here in our presence? His resurrection was a demonstration that he is true. His resurrection tells us he is in fact the son of God. And therefore, because Jesus is true and he's the son of God, he is the authority in life who reveals to us the most wonderful realities in life, like what the will of God is, who God is, truth, love, grace, redemption, friendship with God, purpose, forgiveness, assurance, heaven over hell. In fact, Jesus embodies these realities when he said, I am the way, the truth, and the, can someone tell me, life, and no man comes to the Father except to be through me. Now, someone might say, well, Greg, the world is made up of many worldviews and you know, different religions that would give explanation to the past, present, and future, and, and there's no doubt about that. But someone might say, well, who's to really say who God is? And to be so sure about that, well, here's the answer, God himself. <laughs> okay, um, well, if there's a God, why didn't he just step down and reveal himself? He has. Well, if there's a God, why doesn't he make himself more clear? He couldn't have made himself more clear. He made the trip himself and resurrected from the dead. Listen, in order for Christianity to get off the ground from the epicenter of Jewish identity, the city of Jerusalem, it had to have incredible thrust to even take off. Because... Let me tell you something. When Jesus was crucified, and even prior to that, the odds were against him in so many ways. Uh, And against, speaking generally, Christianity, forever surviving. Let me give you some perspective. Please hear this. 
you had the chief leaders in Jerusalem, not all of them, but the, many of the chief leaders, the aristocrats happened to be materialists. There were Sadducees. They were the priests in Jerusalem who wanted Jesus put to death. He was a threat to them. Remember, he's the one that came into the temple, cleansed the temple, said, you've made this a den of thieves. And uh, the high priest was like the den master of the den of thieves. They were making a killing off of worship there in Jerusalem. And it's hard to wrap our minds around this. You gotta trust me on this. There's a bunch of different factions in Israel. But, but the majority of the Sanhedrin, which was a 70 person leadership in Israel, were materialists. They were not spiritual guys. Even though they were called priests, they were known as the Sadducees. They wanted Jesus dead. They manipulated the Roman governor of Judea, Pilate, to have Jesus put to death, even though Pilate knew that Jesus was not guilty. Please hear this. Once Pilate said to the cross, once he said, you know, he tried to wash his hands and like not be responsible for his decision, but once he said, you're going to the cross, I gotta tell you, you're dead. You're done. I mean, the Romans were experts on death. Okay, we're just going to beat the sweat out of you. We're going to mock you. We're going to put you up on a cross and you're not coming down. We're going to be sure that you are dead. And that was the case with Jesus. And prior to that, when Jesus was arrested, and I just got to get this because it's like, you got to understand the odds that Jesus uh, was up against. Okay, prior to that, when Jesus was arrested, led by Judas, with those 600 soldiers, All of the disciples fled except John and Peter. And the only disciple that was at the site of the crucifixion was John. The others were just scared. And in a lot of ways, I don't blame them. 120 had followed Jesus to Jerusalem. Only 120. And most of his ministry was in the north where tens of thousands of people would show up when Jesus was ministering. I mean, how did Christianity get off the ground? I mean, it's like, wait a second, the the leaders are against you. Roman governor had you crucified. You only got 120 disciples. It's Passover. You got a million people in the city. How, how does Christianity take off in the epicenter of Jewish identity with all of this pressure that is against it? I mean, in some ways, please hear me. It's, it's like you're watching the Super Bowl and your favorite team is playing. In the first quarter, you're down 150 to zero. Not only that, but all three quarterbacks have blown out their knees, all right? The whole front line is out, okay? The receiver now is the center, okay? The coach is like pulling out his hair. He gets the head cheerleader. She's taking the snaps, okay? Let me share something with you. You're not gonna win. I mean, that is way against the odds, and and that's kind of how it was, trust me, in Jerusalem, and you can't stand up like... Just think of this as a rocket right here. You can't stand up the idea uh, like a rocket of John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. It's either true or false, right? You can't stand that up and expect it to take off unless the thrust is off the charts. If there's no resurrection, Christianity does not fly And Thomas embodied the reasonable mindset of the day. The resurrection had to exclude any possibility of hallucinations, visions of Jesus being alive after his execution. From a man who at one time was the chief antagonist of Christianity, he wrote, I'm talking about Paul, 
that more than 500 witnesses saw Christ after resurrection. He was one of them. On 12 different occasions scattered over a 40-day period, Jesus was seen and heard. Were these visions that people had? Hardly. Jesus was touched at least twice. He ate with the disciples. His crucifixion wounds were visible. The Roman governor of Judea secured the grave, wanting this thing to go away. You say, well, maybe someone stole the body. Um, Wait a second. The greatest military machine in the history of man is guarding that tomb. That means they stretch a cord over it. That means they put soldiers there. You fall asleep, you're put to death. The religious leaders wanted this thing to go away. They're the ones that initiated, hey, Pilate, look, we've heard about this resurrection thing. All we need is four days, and it's Passover. Secure the grave. Secure it. Just need four days, because he talked about third day resurrection. Just give us four days. We're out of here. People are going to be going home. You know, it's the end of Passover and all of these different things. Well, who would have stolen the body? What would have been the motivation? Pilate stealing the body? Um... You have to understand, Jesus said he was the king. For Pilate to steal the body, to get back at the religious leaders in some way, was to perpetuate a big headache because his king was the emperor, Caesar of Rome. Was it the religious leaders? As I said, they wanted to go away. Why would they steal the body, perpetuate this Jesus myth or something? Was it the followers of Jesus, Peter, James, and John? Hardly. Every single one of the original followers of Jesus, original apostles, were put to death for their faith in following Jesus. I mean, people die for lies all the time, but not knowing that it is a lie. And if the disciples had stole the body and this was all concocted, obviously they knew it was a lie. It doesn't make any sense that then they would lay down their life for the faith. Eight days after the resurrection, Jesus appeared to Thomas. Jesus invited Thomas to touch him. Thomas answered, my Lord and my God. He didn't say my inspiration and my friend, but my Lord, which means the one who owns everything. And Thomas not only embodied the mindset of the first century Judaism, questioning the essence of what resurrection meant, but he also embodied the most most important profession to make in life. And you can see, therefore, that something happened in Jerusalem that was so powerful, it gave a confidence to those who followed Yeshua, the Messiah, with a great sense of conviction that he is true, that he is right, that like they're willing to even lay down their life because they know it to be true. How many of you are tracking so far out of curiosity? Okay, awesome. Watch this. Let's make a little transition. We've talked about the evidence for the empty tomb. We've talked about the evidence for the bodily resurrection. Please hear me. There's no Jew who would ever buy into the fact that Jesus is their Messiah No way. The one who died in the lowest form of execution in the Roman Empire? Are you crazy? Again, odds against it unless convinced of a bodily resurrection. It's awesome. The evidence is incredible. Now the question becomes, why did he resurrect? If you look at the broader context, even like the weeks around Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, you really come to understand what the Lord was after. A few weeks prior to when Jesus was on the cross and resurrected, 
Jesus had a good friend die when he resurrected him, and he resurrected, in whom he resurrected from the dead. I'm talking about Lazarus. He was approached by his mourning sister in whom Jesus said, and it's recorded in John eleven twenty five, I am the resurrection and life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live, and whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you see it up there? That's what Jesus said to a sister who was mourning the absence of her brother who had died. Jesus shows up. He doesn't say, hey, listen, Martha, I just want you to know I have special access to the Lord, you know, um, and I can just ask for some power here to kind of help this situation. It's such an incredible claim here. He said, I am the resurrection in life. And if you believe in me, though you die, there's a physical death, you're gonna live. I mean, death actually will not conquer you. And a few moments later, Jesus approaches the tomb of his friend Lazarus, and Lazarus's other sister approaches Jesus. And it tells us when Mary came where Jesus was and saw him, she fell down at his feet, saying, Lord, if you had have been here, my brother would not have died. And therefore, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her weeping, this is very important, he groaned in the spirit and was, can someone tell me? Troubled. Okay, here's the million dollar question. What does that mean, troubled? Why is he troubled? And actually in the original language, he's upset. He's, 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 he's agitated. He's real, something is really bumming him out. What is it exactly? And that's kind of the million dollar question. The answer is he, he is squarely looking at our greatest nightmare, the loss of life. The loss of loved ones and of love. And he's incensed by it. I mean, Jesus came to kill death. Death is no friend of ours. I mean, just think about it. You know, obviously we were all born. There's these investments made emotionally and relationally with our loved ones and with our children and grandchildren. And then what? We just leave them? Oh, or they leave us? It's like there's a cruelty there. It's a bummer, big time. Well, that's an understatement. It's a bummer. It's not like some Southern California guy. It's a bummer, you know. Okay, and it's a bummer. It's a big one, big one. I mean, look, I, I'm looking at my wife in the front row. She's my soulmate, my best friend. So wait, time out. Um, so I love her. I married her. I just, she's given me four beautiful children. We got grandchildren. It's incredible. Um, and then it's what? It's all going to go black? And then there's just death and there's separation. And is life seculatory? Is life like, well, you go from A, B, C, but you never get to D? It's just like you make all of this investment, all of this investment. I just love you or I care for you. We have children. We love each other and we want to make a difference. And then just poof, it just means nothing? Or is life linear? Is life eternal? Is life moving towards something? Well, here's the thing. The Bible says that eternity is written in our hearts, that all of us long for a place of permanence. Who doesn't want to be with their loved ones forever? For there to be death, it's like, Jesus is like, gosh, this is horrible. The, the sister's falling at my feet and she's so upset and this is my friend and there, there's a separation. This is tearing everybody apart. 
please hear me. If you want to understand the meaning of the resurrection, just think of when Jesus then goes over to the tomb of Lazarus with a few simple words. He says, Lazarus calls him, rise, rise up. And in fact, Lazarus is resurrected from the dead. It was a little preview of Jesus' own resurrection. Jesus came actually to kill death, to destroy disintegration, which is, not, which is no one's friend here. Aren't you glad he came? And when we're building a case, that's not all. A few weeks later, while descending the Mount of Olives, for the second time publicly, Jesus wept. The first time was at the tomb of Lazarus. And Luke chapter 19, verse 41 says, Now as he drew near, he saw the city and he wept over it. Some translate that term wept as he wailed. He is deeply moved by this. And he goes on to say in verse 42 and verse 44, If you had known, even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your, can someone tell me, peace. I mean, he's really concerned. Please hear this. For Jerusalem and everybody in Jerusalem, he's really concerned for their peace. Now we might think, oh, peace is the cessation of strife or the cessation of war. Yeah, but it's a whole lot more than that. I mean, in Israel, you have enemies to the north, Hezbollah. You have enemies to the south, Hamas. They're presently not shooting any rockets at each other. Okay, there's a cessation of strife, or at least visibly there is, but there's really no peace. The Bible's idea about peace is much bigger than we often think. The term shalom is a huge, weighty, wonderful idea, beautiful term, and it speaks of wholeness. It, it speaks of things working properly together. And if there's not peace, it means there's a breakdown. Like think about a watch, for example, that just works in all this unique synchronization. If the watch is broken, everything gets mangled. It begins to decay. Like there, here's what Jesus is saying. He's looking at Jerusalem and he's just going, you know what? You don't understand what the chief problem is here. You guys are making the emperor of Rome the problem. It's like, it's like you're making the Ayatollah the problem. You're making the economy the problem. That's not the problem. There's like a darkness behind the darkness. There's a problem behind the problems we see. It's like, you know, Breakdown in families, that's a bummer. That is a problem, but it's like, it's like, okay, here's the thing. There's a core problem like behind the problems and that, that's what I'm after. I'm telling you, I'm going after the darkness behind the darkness. The core problem is this broken relationship with Almighty God. If that gets right, everything finds a right balance and I'm, I'm going after that. I'm going to come, I'm paraphrasing, I'm going to come into Jerusalem. Ultimately, you guys are going to choose Barabbas over me, the insurrectionist, the guy who took out the knife and stabbed the Roman in the back or something. You think the problem is political. You think it's economic. It's like, oh, you don't understand what really is at stake here. You don't understand what's necessary for your peace. And it's like, he's weeping over Jerusalem to the extent he's like, goodness gracious, you're going to miss your day of visitation. Please hear this. If Jesus is so concerned about Jerusalem 2,000 years ago, about what makes for peace, and whether you have, you're seizing the right day of visitation, could it be he's really concerned 
about those issues in your life as well? Oh, I'm telling you, he is because he totally loves you. He wants the best for you. Okay, we're still building a case here. We'll be here for a couple hours. But John 13 is one of the most bizarre realities that Jesus experienced. And this gives us perspective the importance of his resurrection. He was actually betrayed by Judas. How many of you ever heard of that before? The betrayal of Judas, right? While having Passover meal, John 13, verse 8 and 21, it reads, Jesus saying, he who eats bread with me has lifted up his heel against me. And when he had said these things, he was troubled in spirit. It's like, well, there's Jesus troubled again. Yeah, really passionate, really big concerns. He's having this Passover meal reenactment of historical deliverance, kind of like our Thanksgiving in a way. And he, and he gets really troubled, really bummed. This is after he's washed the disciples' feet. This is after he said, I want to have this Passover meal with you. There's a, some sense of joy and anticipation and purpose. And then his mood changes. And he's like, you know what? There's someone here who's going to lift up his heel against me. And that doesn't mean a lot to us in the West. But to lift up your heel to someone's twofold. One is, you know, dirt underneath the feet. It's a, it's, it's, it's a high offense. In addition, the implication is there's someone who's going to betray me, which is an intentional wounding. There's someone who's going to kick me in the face. It's like, whoa, where did that come from? I was so close. We were buddies. Boom. Just hit in the face. It's like, oh my goodness. And he's deeply troubled by this. And what grieved him was the betrayal and the treachery of Judas who would lift up his heel against him. It's a playoff of Psalm 41. And, and it's this idea of a surprise kick, a, a sinister, evil act of surprise. It, it raises the question, well, why Judas? I mean, how can a man who saw what G Judas saw and heard what Judas heard ex and experienced what Judas experienced actually betray Jesus and kick him in the face? I mean, wasn't Judas one of the original 12? Yeah. Didn't he spend three years with Jesus? Yes. Uh, wasn't he like responsible for the money bag, the treasure? Yes. Well, um, if he walked with Jesus for three years, then he saw Jesus walk on the water? Yes. He saw Jesus raise Laz uh, Jairus's uh, daughter, the rabbi there in Capernaum? Yeah. Yeah, the same guy who sat at the table of Simon the leper and Bethany, as well as Lazarus in whom Jesus has resurrected. He saw all of those things. Man, what's wrong with this guy? Yeah, what is wrong with him? I mean, what a tragedy, isn't it? And it's a tragedy that the Lord doesn't want repeated in any way, shape, or form. Because here's what's really happening while Judas is betraying Jesus, like with a kick in the face, the reason Jesus is super bummed about it is not so much that it's going to hurt him, but that Judas is kicking himself in the face. He just doesn't know it yet. You see, sin is no friend of anyone. Sin makes you a betrayer to yourself, to your family, to your business, a betrayer to the person who gave you the job, a betrayer to the person who gave you your life. Sin is no friend of ours. 
And the Lord loves us so much, he wants to purge it from our life. So it's like, watch this. If we have our back to him, and Judas had his back to Jesus over and over and over and over and over again, the Lord was trying to get his attention. He's like was speaking to him and asking him questions. And it's like Judas never responded. He never answered the questions as as much as the Lord was trying to get his attention because he loved him. And in fact, at the Passover meal, long story short, when Jesus said, look, someone here is going to betray me and all the disciples, who are you talking about, Lord? And he said, well, the one in whom I take the bread and I hand the bread. Well, you got, look up here for a second real quick. Just think of this as a horseshoe. This is how they were eating the, the, the shape of the table is like a horseshoe. Jesus is here. Judas is in the high position there at the table. He positioned himself there. And even though the Lord had told stories about don't do that, there he is. And John is, is right to Jesus' right. And they're leaning on their elbow. John is here close to Jesus' right chest. Judas is right here. Uh, Jesus has said someone's going to betray me. And, and, he's, and he's handing him out of friendship, out of love, this piece of bread. Judas could have said, time out. I'm done. I, uh, Lord, you see this. I've made big mistakes. But he didn't. Please hear me. The longer a person keeps their back to the Lord, like Judas, the more potential that sin morphs and desensitizes them, where they lose perspective for making the most important decision in their life, and that is to embrace Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Hey, can I hear an amen to that? It's true. And then hear this. Prior to Jesus' arrest, he's in the garden, The Bible says he was withdrawn from them about a stone's throw. He knelt down and he prayed. And he said, Father, if it's your will, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. And then an angel appeared to him from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. And then he sweat became like drops of blood falling to the ground. Well, This cup that Jesus was talking about was a metaphor. It not only spoke of his death, but a whole lot more. That inside this cup was every stinking sin in human history. All like the horrible choices of, by nature, type of betrayal and their consequences. It's just like, what's wrong with man? What's wrong with us? It's like all in this cup. And the idea is that Jesus is going to drink it. He's going to internalize it. He's going to absorb it. He's going to create a new man in himself. And it tells us that no one really understands what's at stake when it comes to sin. Sometimes we say, well, you know, I I know I'm a sinner and we should know we're sinners. We need his help. We need help outside of ourselves. We need the Lord. But none of us really understand the blackness of sin. The only one that really does is the one who bore our sin and shame. And thank God that he did. And when Jesus was on the cross, he said seven statements, but one of them was at three o'clock in the afternoon, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Now that was a quote of Psalm 22 written hundreds of years prior. If you read the Psalm, it is actually like almost someone is an eyewitness to the crucifixion before it ever happened. 
You say, well, why is Jesus saying, my God, my God, why is thou forsaken? It sounds like he's losing faith or something is happening that he didn't intend to happen. No, he understood clearly he was going to give his life. He made that clear. He was going to resurrect. He made that clear. He's asking a question. My God, my God, why has thou forsaken me? He knows the answer, but he wants all of us to know the answer. The answer is so that you and I wouldn't be forsaken. So what does the resurrection mean? Well, look, uh, just look at the context. He hates death. It's our enemy. He's super concerned about your peace with God and with your fellow man. He's super concerned about the choices you make. The most important is to embrace him. So don't miss your day of visitation. He's totally grieved over sin. Sin is no friend of ours. The little white lie, the little lust, The bitterness, the hatred, the greatest sin is keeping one's back to Almighty God. All of that stuff morphs in bigger ways than we could ever imagine. And the Lord knows it. He totally loves us and he wants to help us. And he's carrying this burden. He's carrying the burden. He's come to pay the price and make things right in himself. So therefore, like coming to a crescendo, then what would the resurrection mean? Well, Paul, interestingly use an illustration to help us understand it. Because if we were to go back 2,000 years ago, like one of the biggest events that could ever take place in the Roman world wasn't the Greek games, it wasn't the Super Bowl we have today, obviously. It was when a general would come into the city of Rome having conquered a land And in fact, Jerusalem was conquered in 70 AD and they brought the menorah and everything and all the gold from the temple. It's a horrible sight. But just just check this out. So you got this general walking in, leading this procession. He has all of these treasures from a conquered land. I mean, slaves. It's really a gruesome thing. And, and to, but to the Romans, oh, it's something sweet and beautiful. The empire is expanding. There's more treasures. There's greater wealth. You guys tracking with me on this? It's very important. And you got slaves, you got the leaders, and everybody's hailing this thing. I mean, that was a big deal. If you saw one of those things, one of the biggest deals you could see in the first century. All right, Paul said this, now thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ. And that phrase, in triumph in Christ, was a play off of a Roman general coming in to Rome, conquered the land. I got all this booty and treasure and stuff. And the, and the wealth of the empire is greater than ever. Here's what the resurrection tells us. It tells us when Jesus conquered the grave, it was a demonstration, you guys, that the enemy of sin and death and betrayal and breakdown and judgment had been conquered. And what, he's, what he wants you and I to do is he wants you to join the procession. What's the alternative? There is no good alternative. I mean, there's this phenomenal option in front of us. I mean, we're talking the king himself who so loved us, he became a man, and he went out and conquered the greatest enemies of all, and it's like behind him is like all this weakness and sin that is, and destruction that's been conquered. He's creating a whole new reality in himself. Oh, there's the darkness of the emperor of Rome. 
uh, there's the corrupt high priesthood, yeah, in Jerusalem. I mean, there's the Ayatollah of today and the addictions and ignorance and racism and breakdown of family and soul and fellow man. Those are problems, there's no doubt about it, but there's a darkness behind the darkness. And Jesus was going after that, and he was going after that for you and I. And I say that's really good news. How about you? Phenomenal news. And who wouldn't want to join the procession? I mean, when the Giants won the World Series, you had like a million people in San Francisco, right? And there's the procession. And there's the players, and they're celebrating. And it's like, man, I'm a part of this great celebration. My goodness, who wouldn't want to like step in and follow the king and celebrate who he is and what he accomplished for us? Jesus said this, he said, when I am lifted up from the earth, which is a common idiom for crucifixion, he will draw all peoples to myself. In other words, when he's lifted up on the cross, where he gave his life, bridged the gap between God and man, demonstrated the love of God and the justice of God, how does a just God make unjust men just? Uh, By paying the price of sin himself. And when he was lifted up, he's going to draw all men to himself. It's like, and create a whole new wonderful reality in him for which death and sin and disintegration and breakdown has no power. And that's what it is to trust and believe in Jesus Christ. Let me ask you, do you hear his voice? You know, no one can even join the procession unless the Holy Spirit draws them, the Bible says. But I believe he's drawing many of you. I mean, do you hear him when he said, John 3, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever would believe in him would not perish, but have, can someone tell me, everlasting life. Can you hear him? When he says to the Samaritan woman in John 4, hey, listen, you drink of the water you're going after in this well. I mean, we need biological, you know, we need water and stuff, but you drink it, you'll thirst again. I'll give you something you'll never thirst again. It's in right relationship with God. Can you hear him in John 8 when he says, you guys, let me tell you, you know, paraphrasing a little bit, if you don't believe in me, you have your back to me, you'll die in your sins. I, I don't want that. Can you hear him in John 11, where he says, I am the resurrection and life, and if you believe in me, though you die, you shall live. Do you believe in that enough to push the button and turn around? Can you hear him in John 14, when he says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except it be through me. Hey, can I hear an amen to that? Can you hear him in John 19, when he's on the cross, and he says, it is finished. Amen. Listen, you want to put your hopes and your dreams, you want to put your life in the hands of the Messiah. I mean, don't, listen, listen, a lot's at stake. A lot's at stake. And he loves you, loves you, loves you, loves you, loves you. Enough not to leave you the way you are. What I'm going to ask you to do, in the name of what the scriptures call for, I'm going to ask you to take a step of faith this morning. 
I'm, I'm going to ask you, just because I like, if there's this line, imaginary line, you know, between like me and the other side here, I'm going to ask you to step over it and embrace Christ as your Lord and Savior. <laughs> Listen, it's an informed decision. It's an informed step. When we get married, that's a step of faith. When you answer two plus two is four, that's a step of faith. When you eat, 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 that's a step of faith. It's all informed steps. But can't you see that like to believe in Jesus is, is credible and powerful and the, and the foundation of which is incredibly strong and that it would be reasonable to take that step? Can't you see that? I, I'm going to ask you to do that. And as you do, the Lord will give you the strength. And as you do, and you get on the other side, you're going to like, just like other decisions, because this is how knowledge works, you're going to go, oh man, man, one billion percent, the best decision I ever made in my life. Can I hear an amen to that?